Registry Matters is an independent production. The opinions and ideas here are that of the host and do not reflect the opinions of any other organization. If you have problems with these thoughts, FYP. Recording live from FYP Studios East and West, transmitting across the internet, this is episode, wait for it, 290 of Registry Matters. Good evening, gentlemen. How are you? I can't just say Larry anymore. I've got to, like, include Chance now, too. Very well. Thank you. I'm doing awesome as well. I can't wait to get this thing rolling. Well, we are now rolling. It is officially rolling. Uh, make sure you head over to YouTube and press like and subscribe. Leave five-star reviews. I have a button here. There it is. I had to move buttons around because we had so many clips last week. So make sure you press like and subscribe and click the fancy buttons and everything. Subscribe on your favorite podcast app and all that. So, Larry... You being the uh, the the one that writes what we're going to be doing. What are we going to be doing? Well, we're going to be discussing the removal process to deregister in California with our very special guest, uh, Chance Oberstein, who practices in California. And he will be able to fully explain how that process works. And we have a question that we carried over. And we also have a couple of articles, depending on how much time we have, if we can get to them. And I know that they're entertaining to me. So that means that they won't be entertaining to you. What it's a probably true. episode for this subject. All righty. Well, but before we get going, and I'm going to hand this mostly off to you and Andy, but before we get going, I'd like to add a little bit to the mix. Some people insist that the victims are not involved in removal processes, and they are. And Chance will get into that in terms of how California law is constructed and what victims, how they participate or not. But I have... I have to add this from the onset. I have a case uh, uh, as well as some statutory language from Georgia law. And the case is Rhonda McCleary versus Naldaway County Sheriff's and Missouri State Highway Patrol. And this case was just decided by the Missouri Supreme, not the Missouri Supreme Court, the Missouri Court of Appeals on December 12th. The facts are, as articulated by the Court of Appeals are, on July 18, 2022, the circuit court held a short hearing on the petition. The prosecutor told the court that there was no objection to the petition and that the state had contacted the victim who was in custody and that the victim did not know that McCleary was on the sex offender registry and did not oppose her being removed from it. This strongly suggests to me that the victims are definitely involved in the process in Missouri. I mean, would either one of you disagree with that before I go into Georgia? I wouldn't. So you, if if the court of appeals reviews the trial court history and says that the victims were notified, in this case one victim was notified, and that the victim didn't didn't object, that strongly suggests to me that there is a participation by the victims in Missouri. So as we go on, if we go on to if we go on to Georgia, we recently had a guest on from Georgia, and the petition to be removed had been denied and he expended a lot of financial resources and he wanted to know if he should go pro se. And I said, absolutely not. But it was denied due to the victim being in opposition. Now, the relevant law in Georgia is OCGA 42-1-19, Section D, and we'll read in relevant parts. Subsection D1 includes that the court may consider, one, any evidence introduced by the petitioner, Number two, any evidence introduced by the district attorney or sheriff. And number three, any relevant evidence. Now, chance on number two and number three, 
would you say that that would include victims in there but that broad latitude that that is expressed in number two and number three? Oh, that's yeah yeah of course i would i mean that's a very broad scope if you look at number two it says any evidence and that's exactly what it means anything goes okay now i've always confessed i'm not a licensed practitioner of the law i'm not but i am able to read and the key points of the georgia statute are subsection two and subsection three any evidence introduced by the district attorney leads a wide leaves a wide amount of latitude and any relevant evidence would certainly include hearing from the victim. Andy and Chance, you guys are going to take it away from here on getting off the California registry. And if I have any questions or observations, I'll try to chime in. Okay. Thank you very much. Then I guess we'll get to how to petition for termination of your sex offender registration requirement, or at least the nuts and bolts of the petitioning process in California. So let's start out. First thing you've got to do California, is determine if you're eligible. How do you do that? Well, one, you've got to ask some questions like, one, have you met your minimum mandatory registration period pursuant to Penal Code Section 290E? In other words, have you registered for either 10 years or 20 years? Because you've got to register for that amount of time to be able to petition off those particular tiers. Second question. Are there pending charges against you which could extend the time to complete your tier or change your tier? For instance, failure to re- a, new, a new failure to register or a failure to register or a new sex offense. That will certainly trip you up. Another question, are you in custody? Because if you are, you can't petition off of custody. Are you on parole, probation, or supervised release? That would disqualify you as well. Are you classified as a Tier 3 lifetime registrant? If that's the case, you can't, because in California, if you're lifetime, it's lifetime. If, if you don't mind, I have a battery of questions that I would like to throw at you and get your legal mind opinion on what things would be if I were to, uh, well, for these questions to be asked. Is that all right? Okay. Yeah, perfect. All right. So... Since I uh, had all my time and all that stuff in Georgia, and if I somehow figured out how I was going to for- uh, be able to afford to live in California, and uh, I made my way out there, would I be able to, since I have an out-of-state condi- uh, conviction, would I be able to petition to be removed from the registry in California? Yeah, the answer is yes. If you meet the mandatory minimum registration requirements for the applicable tier for that offense, you may petition for termination from the requirement to register as a sex offender in California. Simple as that. And suppose that they can't immediately figure out what kind of tier I would be under. What happens then? That's a good question. Now, you know, we, but we do have, do have a section that pertains to that. Pursuant to Penal Code Section 290D5, a registrant is placed in a tier-to-be-determined category until their appropriate tier designation can be ascertained. Once it is ascertained, and you are classified as either a Tier 1 or a Tier 2. And if you meet the mandatory minimum registration requirements for the applicable tier of that offense, you may petition for termination from the requirement to register as a sex offender in California. Does your time include your time out of state? So someone that has been on the registry, I, you know, if, if you were Larry and you got on the registry in the 1800s when he was coming up, and then you move to California, does that time count or does it start the moment you step foot in California? 
No, your 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 time is your time. Whether you did it elsewhere, you do it in California. Oh, really? It's the it's the aggregate time. Interesting. That's a interesting point because I I know somebody. There's somebody asking in chat, and he's been on the registry for quite a while, and uh, might might be an option for him, I suppose. Yeah. Um, is my registering law enforcement agency required to comply with my request? Oh yeah, oh yeah. I mean, it it, it must provide you. Uh, with your DOJ uh, designation and proof of current registra uh, registration upon request. It must. Can you expand on that and, and clear it up a little bit? Yeah. Um, first of all, this comes under request, uh, requesting your tier designation letter and copy of your proof of current registration from your, for your, from your registering law enforcement agency. So um, that would be from where I'm from, Yes. It, no, it's where you're from in California, and this is this is something that people get very confused about. So, um, first of all, uh, your question is: uh, are, Is your law enforcement agency required to comply with that request? Well, yeah, under state law, it must. If you qualify and you're otherwise eligible, it has to. It must provide you with your tier designation and proof of current registration. Very good. And then is my proof of current registration form the same as my annual registration form? Yeah, no, actually it isn't. And this is where people get confused because they think that proof of registration means that they, they have a form that they've done annually. And uh, that just doesn't cut it here. In California, a proof of current registration form is a CJIS 8050. It's different from your annual registration form and is only used for the purpose of petitioning off the, off the uh, registry for termination. Now, if you are eligible for relief and you obtain the proper California Judicial Council forms, the instructions and forms can be found online. Okay, And that's, and, and, and let me just say that one more time. You've got to have the proper forms because it's up to you to initiate this process. So in order to initiate it, you've got to fill out the proper forms. And when I say proper forms, I mean um, the forms that are used specifically in this process, which, which can be found online. So if you want to go online to find them, you can enter in your search engine uh, California Judicial Council forms. Uh, once you get to that site, enter termination of sex registration, find your court forms box. Make sure you download the following forms, and I'm going to name them out for you so that CR-415, which is a petition to terminate sex offender registration. The CR-416, which is proof of service. The CR-418, the CR order on petition to terminate sex offender registration. Are these forms only available online? No. You can also contact your local superior court or juvenile court and request the forms as well. But, you know, you've got to fill out the petition, uh, the CR-415, this is the first thing you do in the process, and then attach your current registration, your current proof of registration form to it. And do I do I do this all by myself? Am I like in the burden of proof, or or is it just completely advisable to reach out to an attorney because they're going to know how to I'll do all this? Well, you know, a lot of people ask, uh, "What if I'm having trouble understanding or filling out the forms?" And you know, the forms are pretty straightforward. Um, but sometimes people just have trouble with those things. And, uh, 
you know, there is form information next to the download box for every judicial counsel form. However, if this task is too daunting or you don't understand or you're just confused, always seek the assistance of a local public defender's office or a private attorney. Can Once we just reach out to done, public defenders, though? Can we just reach out to them and ask them for help on stuff? Yeah, yeah. When, when it, in, in California, when it comes to post-conviction relief, you certainly can. You, can. you can reach out to the public defender's office. Most of those offices across the state have designated units that handle these things. And so they do have the information at hand, more than willing to share it with you. And then once and just that's to done, jump oh, in. Sorry. Hang on one second. Well, so Larry, is that does that exist in all of the states, or is California different? California is probably unique in their resource level because here the public defender has to be assigned to your case, and if you call the public defender, they they will represent you when they've been assigned to the case. There has to be an ongoing proceeding, and I don't know that any you can just call the public defender. I mean, they may give you this the duty attorney the the duty attorney for that day may have a conversation with you, but you're not going to get any active representation from them until the court has has put them on your case and qualified you as indigent. Okay. All right. Please continue, sir. Sorry for the interruption. Oh, yeah. and, and Larry brings up a good point because California does represent. So if you're unable to afford a private attorney, California certainly can do that through the public defender's office. Okay. Now I'll go on here. Once, once, you, once you have those forms, okay, and you fill them out, you got to determine the proper court in which to file your petition. Let me give you a hint. It's in the same county in which you register and most likely closest to your place of residence. In other words, your local superior court. So you've got to file the petition at that courthouse. Um, should, the, um, should the petition be filed at the criminal clerk's window or at the civil clerk's window? God, these, like, nowhere in my brain would I think of, oh, God, a window A or window B. Which window right. would I go to? Right. Who does? I mean, it's, you know, you know, as a layperson, how would you know which window to go to? I mean, it makes the most sense to go to the criminal clerk's window because this was originally a criminal clerk's matter. <laughs> but, but, but the registration, hold on, that's a civil regulatory scheme. It is, but it stems as a condition of a criminal case. So <laughs> everybody just naturally thinks that it goes into the criminal box. But every county in California is different in terms of procedure. Once you determine the correct court to file in, Okay, which is the correct location, and contact the clerk of that location, and they'll tell you whether you should go to the criminal clerk or you should go to the civil clerk, or there's a special clerk, because they are all different. So once you decide, uh, or I'm sorry, once you determine that, where, where to go, um, that's, that's where you file it. And once you file it, you have to serve copies of your petition on, law, on, on the law enforcement agency or agencies and on the district attorney or district attorneys that are involved in this case in your petition, and then file proof of service at the same at the same place your petition was filed at the same clerk's office with the same clerk. Now, to be fair, Chance, I have done one of those. I have served copies to law enforcement agencies and district attorneys for a a case that was being brought in Georgia, and I was not received very well. So here you're like, so on whom do I serve my petition? Well, you know, it's, it's, it's streamlined in California. It's a little bit different. Um, and let's, let's take a step back here for a minute. The petition, meaning the, you know, the three-page CR 415 and the two-page proof of current registration, 
which is attached to your petition, so it's, it's altogether a five-page document, is required to be served on the law enforcement agency you register with and the district attorney in the county where the petition is filed. So they're, unique, they're, they're not uniquely different. They're uniquely the same. And then, okay, um, you must also do it on the law enforcement agency and the district attorney of the county where you were convicted if it is different from the county where the petition is being filed. So let's just say that originally you picked up a conviction in County A, and now you reside in County B. Sure. You're going to serve the agency you register at at County B, plus law, or plus the district attorney's office in County B, and also you're going to serve um, the law enforcement agency in County A, where where you registered originally, and um, also the DA's office in that particular county that prosecuted your case. Does that make sense? Oh, yes, I under I, like the words. I can read the words and I can understand the words, but I got lost at least three paragraphs ago. Seriously, yeah, this is yeah. complicated. And it's complicated. Yeah. And, and you know, what? it's not only it's, it's it's a little complicated. OK, and it's always and it's also fraught with, you know, problems because every jurisdiction is different. You just and, said that every county and, has their own procedure. They do. And, you know, there's there's no uniformity across California. So you really got to, you know, you've got to know what you're doing in this realm. How many um, counties are there in California? Lots. I don't I, I, I <laughs> lost count. Lots, uh, lots, lots. Andy, right. can I can I yeah, ask? Uh, actually, I want to clarify something you said when you said you weren't well received. You're not making an apples to apples comparison here. Serving documents is different than what you got uh, almost handcuffed for. You were actually <laughs> going, you were going to see a court to get an order signed. And I was you were talking getting... about the the uh, Halloween case, though. I was talking about when I was going around delivering the uh, cease and desist, whatever, to the attorneys and the uh, DAs, whatever the, the the sheriff's offices. Oh, okay. Well, I didn't think you had encountered any major problem there, other than the no. fact that one of the one of them wasn't there. But if you go in as a as the as a defendant in a case and you're going to get an order signed and you are the defendant, if the courthouses in rural America still are letting people go in, they don't let us come in Bernalillo County anymore, but if at the courthouse where they let you go in and sit down with the judge's office, they're not going to be very happy about the defendant sitting there waiting for them to sign an order. They're just not. I mean, oh, they I can, totally get that. The, the, I, I, I was referring to the other one where I was scared out of my mind because I was still on the registry, still on supervision, going around to these people's offices. I, I, I even brought a runner with me so that it wasn't me going in there and putting myself under the uh, firing line, so to speak. Well, just for the audience uh, clarification, we had served two, we were serving two counties, Butts and uh, Spalding, Spalding County in Georgia. And we had, uh, we were delivering them to the county attorney office and I believe to the sheriff's office themselves. So they had two stops for each county. And it was like on a Friday before Halloween or something like that. Something <laughs> so it was, like that, yes. It was, it was like the uh, one said, I, I didn't need this the day before or the weekend or whatever. But, but yeah, that's what you're talking about. Okay, go ahead. This is, this is getting very entertaining here in terms of this process. Well, yeah. And, you know, let me, but let me simplify it a little bit because Please. the great part here is you don't have to serve it personally. Uh, the most efficient way to serve these agencies is through priority mail. So you, you take your, your, three-page petition, your two-page current proof of registration. You put it in a priority envelope, priority mail, just with tracking so you know where it went. 
no signatures required, and you send it off to uh, the law enforcement agency you register at, the district attorney in that county, and if it's and if you were convicted in a separate county, those entities over on in that that jurisdiction as well. And once that is done, I mean, we could, you know, roughly, what, a week for the mail to go around. How long could it take to get a response on my petition? Now, that is a great question. And it, and as everything else in this, in this process, it fluctuates. I mean, at max, it's a 120-day process because law enforcement has 60 days to submit a report regarding your eligibility. And once they do that, the district attorney has 60 days to respond to your petition. Now, this time period uh, can be shortened depending on how quickly these agencies respond, and so every case is different. Some go to the max, some don't, uh, but in general, at max, it should be 60 and 60. So that's that's what, where the parameters are. What you've described, at least at this one little step of the process, is this is just a 100% factual information gathering piece. I'm assuming like the law enforcement, are you, do they get calls to go to your house every week to deal with you being a a, a bonehead, or are they are they asking for personal opinions? No, no, n- none of which. They're what they're doing is calculating the time that you've registered, if you've picked up any new cases, if you're on parole, if you're if you've got pending cases, everything I mentioned that could cause you to be ineligible. All this is is an eligibility report. And I gotcha. So most of that can be done right on the computer within moments. Right. But to counter that, what Larry brought up at the beginning of if the victim is involved, in this particular step, have have they reached out to the victim and asked of their opinion? Okay. Absolutely not. No, no, this is just a preliminary to you meet the basic criteria of, of, of being deemed ineligible. Like if you were to apply for government benefits and you didn't have the requisite amount of service, to qualify, this is an eligibility determination. Are you are you theoretically of, of uh, eligible in the face of the statute? What happens next, Chance? Okay, well, in in simplicity here, uh, three you know just simply three things are going to happen once that happens. One, the court may summarily deny a petition if the court determines that the petitioner does not meet the statutory requirements for termination of sex offender registration, or and this is a big or. If the petitioner has not fulfilled the filing and service requirements of this section, what am I saying here? What I'm saying is that all those things I talked about, as far as eligibility goes, that go into that eligibility report that Larry just mentioned, if the report comes back and says ineligible because of any of those things, that stops the process. Okay, and you get a summary and you get a summary denial. Or if you messed up. Okay, you didn't do the proof of service right, um, which is generally the area where people get dinged the most, or you didn't um, fill the form out correctly, which means you missed a box or whatever, or you checked the wrong classification, but whatever it is, if any of those things are present, you know, you can get summarily denied. It doesn't mean that you can't file again. It doesn't mean a time is assigned uh, to you within one to five years of filing again. It just means you've got to fix what's broken. Now, the second thing that can happen is the district attorney does not oppose. They submit a form called a CR-417, and they mark non-opposition, do not oppose the petition. And the Superior Court grants your petition. 
then you come off the registry. However, there's a third thing that can happen, and that is they do oppose. And if they do oppose, a hearing date is set by the Superior Court. And if that should happen, the one big thing that you should start thinking about considering is hiring an attorney if, 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 if of course, the district attorney opposes the petition. And why exactly would you want to hire an attorney? Not that this was the simplest, easy thing that you would have to do, but why would you want to hire an attorney? Okay, well, here it goes. Because an attorney can educate the court and effectively argue on your behalf, integrating statutory and case law with a current risk assessment in response to the DA's response in opposition. You need someone who understands exactly what to do and how to do it and how to get in court and argue it. That, that's where the rubber meets the road here. So I know of an attorney in another state, and obviously I did my own registry uh, petition to remove, and the one in the other state that I'm familiar with, he, he produces this like war and peace size novel of why you should be removed from the registry. Does a, an attorney in California go to war with that kind of war chest at their disposal of you're this kind of person engaged in the community, you've had this kind of employment for this long, et cetera, et cetera, and the evaluations and all that stuff to, to support the claim? Yeah, of course. It's, it's a brief, and it's in response to the, to, to the DA's response. So you, you really do have to file a brief. And, you know, it can't be, you know, it can't be um, you know what I say, a kitchen sink type thing. You've got to be right on the mark because what you're doing is educating the bench. You've got to educate the judge to make the right decision. So that that brief has to really, really lay out what statutory law says and what case law says, number one, because more often than not, it's misinterpreted or just absolutely turned upside down by the district attorney who's handling the case. Two, all those things you mentioned really buffer up the case. But in California, the, one of the most important things is that an attorney will know who to go to to get you a, a current risk assessment that the court will, re will respect. And sure. there is case law um, that goes part and parcel with that current risk assessment, which will get you, you know, 99.9%, .9%, you know, over the bridge. So, you know, you've got you've to put all that into that brief, and it's got to be precise, and it's going to have to have exhibits, and, you know, it, it is what the court initially looks at before you get into oral argument. And so what you want to do is make sure that you have, you have set the playing field for victory. What kind of pitfalls would there be? Let me back up. Most of what you've described here seems to be time-based. Um, just you've checked off these boxes and doesn't seem like there's a lot left to be... Um, I don't, I don't know what the right word would be. I don't want to say interpreted, but to be subjective. What, okay, what kind well, of pitfalls show up that would be objective? No, I'm well, sorry. Subjective, not objective. The other way around. I, I said that backwards to begin with. Yeah. Pitfalls, you mean in terms of all the things I've outlined here? Yeah, no. The things that you haven't outlined here, actually. Like you go into court and, and the thing that would be the, the thing that comes out of the corner is that the victim writes a note that says you're a piece of dirt and you shouldn't be removed from the registry. Something okay, along so, those lines. Yeah, you don't have to, I don't think you have to worry too much about that because um, this is about, this is really just, a, you know, a, a risk assessment 
you know, the, the burden of proof in these hearings is defined by a case called Ty now in California. And the burden is on the prosecution to show that you pose a current risk. And so, you know, your focus is opposing that. Uh, a victim who was, who was included in the underlying case, uh, you know, generally, you know, you can, the, the court can look at the police reports and everything else, but in general, what we're really talking about is what's happened in between the time you were convicted and the day you appear for court for this hearing. And so unless you've had an interaction with the victim and they have a point of view, or you've had interactions with other folks and they have a point of view, or, you know, and, and, you know, it is relevant to the proceeding. Those things just don't go. The, the, what, what happens in these proceedings and the thing that people don't really understand um, when they get into them is that, the district attorney wants to sell the facts of the case as if they were brand new, as if they were happening today. And thank, you know, thankfully, the Thai case, and, and this is a whole different, this is a whole different talk, because I think you, you have to look at the procedural nuts and bolts different than from a hearing. I think we could spend a whole segment on just a hearing, but to make a, a long story short, um, the people generally want to rely on the facts and say they oppose based on those. And because there is a case in California, and because it's such a wonderful case, and that's the Thai case, T-H-A-I, um, which effectively says that they have the burden of proof to show that a person is a current risk. I mean, if, if they can't get over that burden, um, then theoretically, you should win every time. In your experience, do they? They, they, do, do they bring up these facts all the time? Oh, I, I, either way, do, do people, is there a good chance of success when people do bring it and how much does the DA oppose it? I guess is the way that that would be asked. Okay. I'm, let me, let me see if I can figure out what you're saying. In, in my experience, I, I, you know, this thing, this, you know, this process has started out, uh, started out in 2021. I've been doing it since then. Uh, I have not lost a petition yet now i'm not saying i won't in the future but so far based on, on you know what what i've said so far if everything is done correctly if this whole process leading up to the hearing is done correctly and it goes to hearing um based on statutory and case law and a current risk assessment and the fact that a person has remained basically uh, with a clean record yeah I mean, offense if we, free if we look at if we look at that I mean, their, their conduct, uh, and, and generally I, I do submit a current risk assessment, but um, that, that's a, it's been a winner every time. Are you a first-time listener of Registry Matters? Well, then make us a part of your daily routine and subscribe today. Just search for Registry Matters through your favorite podcast app, hit the subscribe button, and you're off to the races. You can now enjoy hours of sarcasm and snark from Andy and Larry on a weekly basis. Oh, and there's some excellent information thrown in there too. Subscribing also encourages others of you people to get on the bandwagon and become regular Registry Matters listeners. So what are you waiting for? Subscribe to Registry Matters right now. Help us keep fighting and continue to say F-Y. Very good. Larry, do you have anything that you want to add in? 
yes, uh, uh, how are those risk assessments paid for? Because I'm a big believer in having a current one, and I have all sorts of pushback from people. They say, well, Larry, you don't understand. I had a risk assessment in 2007. I said, what do you think I don't understand about it? I understand you had a risk assessment in 2007. The court wants to know where you are today. Who pays for those risk assessments in California? Yeah, well, that's up That's up to the petitioner. And, and you know, generally they pay for the risk assessment. Okay, or, or there, when you said the public defender can do those for people who are or eligible, I'm presuming they have to be eligible for public defender services in California. If, if it was a free-for-all, uh, nobody would pay for private counsel hardly. But does the public defender, are they provided by statute uh, funding or do they have to rob one of their expert funds? Do the, the people who are in it, do they get representation? Or, well, to, or not representation, but do they get uh, expertise for a current risk assessment or do they just kind of have to go with what they had 10 years ago? Well, that's, that's a good question uh, because uh, state law doesn't that as far as I can see uh, and they are set up and they do represent indigents in these cases as far as risk assessments go I don't know how they arrange it and it may be different for each jurisdiction but I would say that if they don't arrange it it's, it's really not a good idea to go that way if you have something that could be heavily contested through a hearing so well I've read the tie case from the uh, California Court of Appeal uh, and it certainly does emphasize and make abundantly clear that the uh, burden is on the prosecution. But uh, what what has troubled me about I don't like petition processes because of the very things we're talking about right now, the the mismatch resources that the state has versus the petitioner, and the fact that it's a fairly cumbersome process that one has to go through. Uh, I would prefer a timeout method, but that's not an option. So certainly this process in California was, would be preferable. To, to what the law that pre-existed, meaning that everyone was on for life. I concede that, have always conceded that. But I would, if I could design the system myself, I wouldn't design this system the way it is, even though apparently it works better in California. But at the time I was doing my pontifications, the tie case didn't exist. And the tie case still doesn't say that the victims can't be heard from. I don't see, I saw a section, I think in California law, I didn't put it into notes today, but it says also relevant evidence. Doesn't relevant evidence, could that not include the victim? If the, if the prosecutor wants to read the police report, or are you going to be able to win that objection and say, objection, Your Honor, we don't need to hear anything about this. This is ancient history. I mean, does, is the victim completely cut out of the process in California? No, not really. I mean, they, they do, they're, they're, you know, they're, their participation is in the original reports, and the court surely, because the people always submit the reports, surely reads them. But, you know, they're, as far as the hearing itself, you know, and, and there's, a, there's a, uh, uh, a law, it's called Marcy's Law, and it, it allows victims to testify, you know, at, at almost every hearing. But this hearing is a little bit different. And, you know, I've had this issue come up where, the people, the DA's office, the prosecutor in particular who is handling the hearing wants to bring in victims. And I've argued effectively that Marcy's law doesn't apply and that this is not that kind of hearing and uh, that unless there's been some type of contact or unless they have relevant information within the re what I would call the, the, the risk assessment period window, um, from the time the person's placed on probation until this very day, that their testimony isn't relevant. And every court I've argued that in has agreed with me. 
well, you're on a roll. I'm hoping that the bar makes that argument across the board in terms of keeping the victims out. They don't belong in this civil regulatory process at all. And that's one of the things that causes me to so vehemently object is because they're intimately involved in these processes across the country. And they wreck a lot of removal petitions after people have done well, like the guy in Georgia that we talked to had done well, but he, his train was derailed by victim participation. Yeah, as far as I'm concerned, they have no role in this civil regulatory scheme, shouldn't have any role, but yet they do. And, and I find that to be one of the many problems I have with this. But certainly this is better than being on for life with no way to be off. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, well... I don't have anything else. Do you want to try to take a stab at this next question that uh, is related to California? We carried it over from last episode. Sure, sure. Okay, okay. Andy, Andy, Andy is going to read this from one of our patrons that gives us $36,000 a year. Wow. Um, I'm just saying, Larry, I think I'm pretty privy to the uh, accounting books. There's nobody that does that. Oh, okay. All right. Well, this is a question for Chance, but it says, hi, Andy and Larry. So this probably came in before uh, Chance was involving himself with us, with, with we people, Larry. There's no more you people. There's we people. Okay. It's does me that again. Mean, does that mean small people like we, like small? <laughs> no, it's not that kind of we people. No. But you okay. know, there was a car named a Yugo and they made a minivan and it's called a Wego. Ah. But, but dump bump. All right. That was bad. All right. It's me again. I just listened to your latest podcast about Bob and his attempts to get relief from the Georgia registry. That got me motivated again to research some more about, for, uh, about this for us in California. I came across this case from Joyzy from New Jersey, and I was hoping Larry could take a look at it. In California, certain PFRs were able to file for a COR, Certificate of Rehabilitation, to get removed from the California registry. My fiancé was eligible to file the petition since he, uh, his time had elapsed. Then came, time, came the new tiered registry law, SB 384. With this new law, they added that obtaining a COR would no longer relieve one from the registry. Isn't this similar to the New Jersey case uh, in that prior to the new law, my fiancé would have been eligible to petition off the registry after seven years, but with the new law, this possibility was taken away. And now he has to wait 20 years as opposed to the old law where it was just after seven years for his type of offense. Similar to the New Jersey case, this should not apply retroactively, in my opinion. I'm just curious on what you think. Oh, and by the way, FYP. Okay, perfect, perfect place to jump off here. And, uh, you know, I'll try to make my, respo my response um, accurate and short. Um, I think your question is answered in a case called Doe versus Harris. It's a 2013 case, 57 Cal 4th, page 64, where the court held that a plea agreement does not have the effect of insulating a party to the agreement from changes in the law that the legislature has intended to apply to them. I know that sounds like it doesn't even address your issue, but please read that. Instead of going to the New Jersey case, go to the Doe v. Harris case because that will cover this issue right here about retroactive application and, and what can be, what, what types of cases can be retroactively, um, are not cases, but what kind of laws move retroactively and what don't. In, you know, the bottom line here uh, that you should understand is that the, well, you know, 
this particular law, you know, PC 290, um, and the tiered registry law, SB 384, SB 384 modified it, and it's a regulatory scheme and it's administrative in nature. But before I go into the, or before I, I don't want to go into the, the 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 woods with this. Take a look at Doe versus Harris, and and if you have questions, I will personally invite you to call me and discuss this, and I will point out exactly the salient features of it. And I'd be more than happy to uh, direct you in the right direction. And how would someone call you? Uh, my information should be there. You can, of course, always Google me. You can find me at ObersteinLaw.com, uh, or you can uh, call my phone number. Uh, that's probably posted here, which is 949-365-5842. Any of those ways will, will uh, work. Very good. Anything to add there, Larry? I tend to agree with Chance as a general proposition on everything he said, although I have not read Doe versus Harris. But I would say that if in a rare circumstance where a person in this state, if it was if the plea agreement, rather than just doing the admonishment and the appraisal of the duty to register, on those couple of plea agreements I've seen where there was a particular time for registration provided, there's case law, and I'm not near as good as Chance is at citing the, giving the citation, but there's a case here that holds to the, uh, uh, the agents of the state that made a bargain that they cannot, that, that cannot be overturned by, you can't deter, overturn a judicial uh, order that was issued in agreement with an agent that has the authority to represent the state. So if the state of New Mexico is stupid enough to put in a plea agreement that you will register for a period of 10 years, and that was integral to the plea negotiations, uh, you would likely have that 10-year period upheld here. But that only happens in such rare cases that it's not going to be something you're going to need to worry about very often. As far as your situation there, I think you're sunk. Yeah, no, I, you know, Larry brings up a really good point too, because there is such a rare case in California and it's called people the errata, A-R-A-T-A. It's a 2007 case. We found at 151 Cal app fourth at page 778. And what Larry's talking about is getting the benefit of the bargain. The reason that there's a, dis to, or not the reason, but to distinguish errata from Harris is kind of like what Larry was saying. If it's part of the bargain, if if clemency, like for instance, uh, um, expungement or dismissal, is part of the bargain, it's pretty hard to argue. If the law changes, you lose that benefit. But no one, no one bargains in California for how much time you do on the registry. It's just not part of it. It's right. a state regulatory law. No one, no one says, "Oh, ten years, twenty years, no years." It just doesn't happen in a plea bargain. It's never part of it. So it's a good point, Larry, and that's exactly what happens here. I well, don't think I've, that's unique to uh, California. Nobody, yes. are, nobody, nobody considers the registry when they're taking their plea deals or going to court at all. It's just like, holy crap, how much time am I going to spend in prison? That's the only thing anybody's worried about. Well, well that's, uh, that, that generally is the nature of the plea. I mean, everybody understands, of course, if you truly understand what you're pleading to, that as a consequence and as a condition, you're going to have to register. But yeah. the plea itself... You know, what, what's to be expected in the plea doesn't involve setting the amount of time that you would, that you would register because 
a district attorney doesn't have the jurisdiction to do that. It's all regulated by the Department of Justice. Well, I used to say that very arrogantly and sarcastically to people who would call me and say, the judge put in my J and S and I will register for 10 years. And I think I've had a total of two presented to me where the judge actually did sign that into the J and S and the prosecutor had initialed or signed off on it. I think I've seen two, what but that's judgment sentence. Okay. And uh, so, so it, at that point it became an order of the court and it was agreed to by a, a delegated official that had the authority to negotiate on behalf of the state. But I've seen it only twice. But if if Sylvia has similar circumstances, perhaps maybe there would be a different outcome. But otherwise, I agree with Chance. It's going to go exactly the way he says. You know, it's too bad, so sad. You know, unfortunately, that's what happened. Moving along, then? Let's move along. We've got a couple of articles here. We're going to be able to get to at least one of them, maybe both. Maybe. Do you want to cover them in the order listed, or do you want to switch, switch it around for the one that you think is funny? Uh... No, let's just do the death penalty because that's generating a lot of chatter about uh, death penalty for sex crimes. Very good. Well, this uh, first article comes from the Idaho Capital Sun. The Idaho Legislature's House Judiciary Rules and Administration Committee introduced a new bill Wednesday afternoon that would allow the state to seek the death penalty for a person convicted of lewd conduct with a minor under 12. Representative Josh Tanner, a Republican from Eagle, is sponsoring the new bill with the committee's chairman, Bruce Skog, um, Republican from Nampa. If passed into law, the new bill would amend the two sections of existing Idaho law to allow a sentence of capital punishment for a person convicted of lewd conduct with a minor under 12 if there are aggravating circumstances. Existing law allows for a death sentence for first-degree murder convictions. Is this a new fad, do you think? Uh, yes, it very much is. Uh, similar bills have been introduced in at least five or six states and already become law in Florida. So, yes, this is... Uh, do, do you think it will pass? Uh, well, it's passed in Florida, and it definitely will pass in a number of the states, particularly the ones that are more conservative politically. Uh, you know, Chance can jump in here about what the Supreme Court of the United States might do because the death penalty has been eroding in, in uh, uh, popularity and previous tribunals of our Supreme Court as it was composed before it took the massive conservative shift that it has now, have been limiting the application, the applicability of the death penalty, even under when Scalia was alive. So, but whether this these death penalty statutes will pass the current muster, that's up for guess. So Chance, do you have any opinion on what mm, this no. court would I, do? I agree, I agree with you completely. It's it's it really is up for grabs there. This we're we're living in a whole different a whole different legal environment now. Larry, well, did I hear something recently that the feds nuked someone recently for the first time in fifty years or something? Well, no, they've they've executed people more recently than fifty years ago. They they executed Terry, Terry Nichols. I mean, there's there's been federal executions. Okay, and, I'm trying to remember what I heard then. Never mind. Uh, just scratch what I just said. Continue. So yes, this is a fad, and it will be it will be used as a wedge issue politically. When the perception has been so eloquently put out there about the ever escalating crime rate, and particularly these vicious sexual offenses, are actually in decline. But the myth of of this horrible things uh, that are happening to children, uh, this is going to be difficult to kill 
particularly in the conservative leaning states, like I said. Now, you take a state like Arizona, where it's pending there, you've got a, a much more evenly divided legislature there, almost evenly divided. And you need a supermajority to override. You, know, you don't just need a simple majority. You need, you need some greater level. It would be either 60% or two-thirds or three-quarters, but it's a supermajority needed. So in Arizona, you've got a governor who's opposed to the death penalty. And I do believe this governor would stand with her morals, and I believe she would veto it if it gets out of the Arizona legislature. And uh, an override would be more difficult in, in Arizona because there's just not the, the supermajority there on the Republican side. But in these other states, like in, uh, in the southeast, where this has been introduced, it's going to be very difficult to stop. I think West Virginia has one pending, and there's a number of states where this has been introduced. So what do you think can be done to stop it? Well, there's really nothing you can do to stop the proposals from being introduced, but what can be done to stop them from passing is to vote for people who profess opposition to the death penalty. And if you vote for people who are law and order that say that they believe that it's okay to execute people, you should not be shocked when proposals are introduced and passed. Yeah, I don't know why I would be shocked if the people that I vote for do the things that I voted for them to do. Well, apparently that shocks some of our people. They they say <laughs> that they're shocked. And I say, well, you voted for the person who professed to be the law and order candidate. And I don't know why you're shocked when they follow, follow through with what they committed to doing, which was to lock up more people and seek longer penalties and tougher enforcement and more resources for the cops and the uh, what is shocking to you i mean but anyway i guess i'm just not smart enough to figure figure it out clearly you're not smart enough there, there you're, you're not looking at the whole picture larry you're just looking at this one narrow little issue yeah right okay <laughs> let's move over to another article you put in from alabama uh thomas owens can't move his arms or legs so his likelihood of committing another property crime is low. Yet one member of the Alabama Board of Pardons and Parole still voted last fall that the 34-year-old quadriplegic man should remain in prison. Board of Chair Lee Gwafney, that's a bizarre name, G-W-A-T-H-N-E-Y, Gwafney, alone voted not to parole Owens to a long-term health care facility. But Owens need not take it personally. Gwafney votes against nearly everyone whose case comes before the all-powerful parole board, a board that today serves as the cap on the shaken-up bottle that is the state's troubled, jam-packed prison system. Uh, well, can you at least finally admit that this is funny? The guy's a quadriplegic, and they won't let him out. Yeah, okay, Larry, that's not funny. No, that's not funny. Sue Bell Cobb stated, I am convinced that the public should know that the chairman of the uh, parole board voted to deny the medical parole of a nonviolent offender who is a quadriplegic, completely bedridden, and spends most, most of the day in a catatonic state. Well, since I don't know what that means, I'm going to keep going. <laughs> so, a catatonic state. The person's like laying in bed, essentially just like staring at the ceiling, like spending all their time in their head, but also probably to the point, and I'm not medical, I'm just going by what I think it means is that they're not answering requests, they're not talking to anybody, they're not doing anything to be further yet engaged. They're just staring off into space. So, well, Sue Bell Cobb went on to say, I don't know how she sleeps at night, referring to Wathney. Cobb is the former Alabama Supreme Court Chief Justice. Now, you wouldn't think of the Alabama Supreme Court Justice in recent memory ever being a liberal. 
who today runs a nonprofit that focuses on parole for prisoners with medical conditions. Alabama doesn't grant many of those either, and yet Owens squeaked by on a two-to-one vote. Owings was serving a 12, 12 years after pleading guilty to burglary, ID theft, and receiving stolen property, and was granted medical parole. He became the rare exception for a board last year granted just 8% of paroles. According to the board's data, in fiscal year 2023, there were five, uh, sorry, 3,583 parole hearings. Just 297 were granted. And this is just hearings, Larry. That's despite the parole board's own guidelines suggesting that more than 80% of the prisoners should qualify for a second chance. The board even rejected all 10 people over 80 octogenarians who were up for parole in 2023. These are your contemporaries, Larry. Uh, I see, but it wasn't all always this way according to the article. Just five years ago, more than half of those who had a parole hearing were granted release. And I remember we're at 8% now. But things changed in 2019 when Guasney took over. At the same time, parolees began to slow, paroles began to slow to a trickle. The entire prison system ran into a major crisis. The U.S. Department of Justice sued in 2020. Now remember, this is under the Trump administration, not known for being liberal, arguing that the Alabama prisons were overcrowded and understaffed, leading to so much death and violence and rape that they failed to meet constitutional safeguards against cruel and unusual punishment. Isn't this the same place that we covered the big uh, uh, war that went on in the prison? Was that Alabama or Mississippi? I always get them confused. Well, I, I know we've covered Alabama and Mississippi a lot uh, in the last few years. We've done this I remember because... we even played, was, we played a video from it and the, the conditions were just, there's black mold growing in the prison cells. Yeah, there's a, the prisons in the deep south are very hard. I mean, California's no panacea because they were grossly overcrowded, but they had one of those damn liberal judges come in there and, and force their hand some number of years ago. But anyway, keep going. Yep, yep, yep. At the end of last year, according to the state corrections reports, there were about 20,000 inmates packed into spaces built for just 12,000. In 2021, the feds updated the suit, saying that the murder rate in Alabama prisons soared past the national average, that the buildings were crumbling, that there were, weren't nearly enough guards, that rapes and extortion were rampant, and that the Alabama appeared uncooperative. Now, doesn't that shock you, Andy, that Alabama Completely. would be un uncooperative? Now, before I, get in, <laughs> before I get into what, I was, what was scripted, when you talk about a prison system running above capacity, it, it's not as simple as it seems to the naked eye. If it's designed for 12,000, you really don't need anywhere near 12,000 in it. You need far less than that because within that 12,000, uh, you've got theoretical space, but you have problems with meeting the theoretical occupancy standard because you have security concerns with people. There may be a person who needs to be isolated. There may be, you may need to have more cells in a security level that are not matched with your inmate population and, and you have a mismatch of available space. So you end up having to put people in the incorrect security classification because you've got more bad boys and you have more low security space. You know, So there's, there's no magic formula. And then when you're running something at 100% or more capacity, which uh, I'm not a mathematician, but 20,000 is well more than 100% <laughs> of 12,000. I can figure that out. You know, it's Almost just, double. 
it's just doubled when you run something at capac capacity you're running a continuous stress on all the systems in the prison because everything is running 24 hours a day from laundry to cooking services if you're trying to prepare meals for twice as many people as the prison's designed for everything in that prison is under a fair amount of stress including the staff because you have office space they built that place to have office space and administrative place a space for a certain number of people so all those people on the outside that have no idea how prisons operate they don't realize you if you have space for twelve thousand, you probably ought to be running about ten thousand to, to be able to be able to effectively manage that population so anyway they're they're twice where they should be uh but the uh, uh the united states Double strike here. The United States uh, Department of Justice has determined that constitutional compliance cannot be secured voluntarily uh, by voluntary means, wrote the Justice Department. The case is speeding towards a high stakes trial for this fall. The article asks So, how did a troubled state penal system, one short on beds and guards, decide, decide that the best way forward was to keep the most number of people behind bars as long as possible? Well, that's not hard to figure out how that happens. Public attitude in Alabama is one of the factors. When you're in Alabama, uh, a chance, have you ever been to Alabama? Do you know actually how bad it is? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the public attitudes, uh, but and according to the article, another is because the hearings are open to the public, inmates don't get to attend, and often there are no advocate, advocates to speak for either side. Each hearing lasts just minutes. If someone speaks, a small timer sits on the podium, ticking down the two minutes allotted to family or friends to make their case. The state and victims advocacy groups usually speak in opposition when someone supports the verdicts of the inmate. I have a question towards Chance. When I first got locked up and started listening to Mountains and Mountains of Radio is when I learned of the overcrowding in California prisons and... I, I, I think that they said it was unconstitutional that the treatment was going on in Colorado, and this would have been roughly, uh, sorry, California in roughly 08 or 09 time frame. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. This falls as, into as that same... Fact, Go ahead. Well, as a matter of fact, the interesting part of what Larry's saying and, and what you're asking is, in California's solution to that was to have 24-hour prison, which means half the population sleeps during the night... <laughs> And half sleeps during the day so that you can make use of that thing 24 hours a day. I mean, think about it. You can it. hot rack it like they do in a submarine. Exactly. I mean, perfect. It, it, you know, and, and what you're talking about, the same conditions exist in every prison all over the United States, but some are worse than others. And this Alabama situation sounds pretty bleak. That does sound pretty bleak. So it just, it, it feels that you could then classify people that did some really bad check kiting kind of things that got them into prison, which probably doesn't exist, but you did some really bad check writing and you're in prison that you could let that person go home and don't let them have a checkbook. It seems like you could make those determinations. Not everybody is in there for rape and murder, that you could find those people that you could let home and put them on parole and probation. Well, well, you could. That's what the article made reference to. Five years ago, they were letting half the people have early release. But the citizens down in Alabama have been petrified because we've been, we're being told, if you watch what's coming out of candidates for office, they're telling us how bad crime is, even though it's not that bad compared to what elevated crime rates we've had in the 70s and 80s. But they're telling us that this is the most dangerous, precarious times we've ever lived in. 
And that translates to a public desire to see harsher penalties because what we're doing is not working. And Alabama is not the most sophisticated state in the country. That's a shocker as, too. Yeah. So it doesn't take much to dupe the people there. And so they want people they elect to be tough. Now, you you have these little pockets of liberalism, maybe in Birmingham, maybe in Montgomery, maybe uh, where there are college university dominance in the community. But Alabama as a whole is so conservative and so far off the charts that the people want this harsh treatment. And they don't give a damn about what people are living like in prison. They Their answer is they should have thought about that before they got themselves into trouble. Can't do the time, don't do the crime. That's exactly what the average Alabamian would say. Uh, all right, then. Well, as usual, Dr. Doom comes to the rescue. Some positive news for us at the end of the show. I'm glad I could help. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. Is there anything else, gentlemen, before we uh, head on out of here? No. Thank you very much for having me on. Tell me that phone number again, Chance. It is 949 949- Three six five five eight four two. Fantastic, Larry. Anything before we go? I'm looking forward to having a easy episode next week. We're going to do some fun stuff, but we haven't put it all together yet. So you'll just have to join us next week to find out. Well, do me do me a quick thing. Tell me tell me why you're so busy all of a sudden. The legislature's in session. And why? I like okay. So, well, I work in the legislature. And are you, do you have any specific targets that you could talk about? Well, I'm, I'm dealing with criminal justice issues, including a registration bill that's going to soon be introduced in the next two or three days. No tow trucking bills? No trucking bills, no. T- tow trucking. You had a tow oh, no. truck bill. No, no, no tow truck bills that I'm aware of this year. <laughs> All right. Well, <laughs> there's a funny story there, Chance. Uh, we, can, we can get to that at some other point, I suppose. <laughs> it was def- definitely definitely funny find all the show notes over at registrymatters.co and leave voicemail at 747-227-4477 registrymatterscast at gmail.com if you want me to forward a message over to Larry I will probably read it too and then of course if you go over to patreon.com slash registrymatters to support the program for as little as a dollar a month but you could go to a much higher like Larry said in 36000 a year that doesn't exist, but you could do it if you really were so uh, motivated to. Yes, and without... it, it, it is tax deductible. You never it tell is... people that. We're I, a I'm 501c3. I do forget about that. We are a nonprofit, like registered and legit and all those other things. So, yeah, anywho. So, when, you're, when you're running, giving to these other organizations like the Chance Oberstein Law Firm, that's not tax deductible, but we are. Correct. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, thank you, gentlemen, very much for joining this evening, and I will talk to you all soon. Have a great night. You too. Thank you. You've been listening to FYP.